We were looking for a laid-back comedy show that covers current events, beer reviews, and movie reviews. We couldn't find one, so we made the damn thing ourselves. The Justin in Time Show. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Is your mom there? No, I'm home alone. Well, you won a prize. What's your address? Uh, 42 Oak Street. Hey, Roblox, some stranger's bringing me a prize. A stranger, huh? All he wanted to bring you was trouble. Remember, never tell anyone you're home alone and never give anyone your address. I'll say mom can't come to the phone. Smart thinking. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. I would like if I may, to take you on a strange It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar, the group of my colleagues. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Eric Benford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills with him too. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio. This is the Cult Worthy Podcast, and this is episode number 41. And this is a very special episode, as today I have an in-studio guest, one of my oldest childhood friends, Jonathan Olszewski. We've known each other since we were nine years old, and we belonged to the cult of G.I. Joe. We lived and breathed for G.I. Joe in the 80s and 90s. We had so many toys, so many vehicles, so many bases, more than anyone in our school. And we weren't Ninja Turtle kids. I don't even think I owned a Ninja Turtle. We weren't Toxic Avenger kids. We were G.I. Joe kids through and through. So we're going to talk about the toys, the TV show, but most importantly, the 1987 direct-to-video G.I. Joe the Movie. This movie played nonstop at both of our houses, whether it was a sleepover, whether it was at a birthday party, or just a Tuesday. We watched this film so many times, and now, 20 years after the last time I've seen it, we rewatched it, and now we're talking about it as 40 year old dads and what it means in today's climate and what it meant to be a boy in the 80s when all the toys were either military based or violence based and what that turned us into as men in this current climate that we live in. So it's kind of a niche subject. If you're not into G.I. Joe, then maybe tune in next week when I talk about uh, other animated films. But I really think this is a good episode to give you an insight in what it was like to be a boy in the 80s. Now, before we get into the episode, I do have to say, rest in peace, Gilbert Gottfried. One of my favorite entertainers of all time he had my favorite podcast of all time, the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast with his host, Frank Santapadre, is one of the main inspirations for why I do this show. They had all these guests from decades of entertainment, film, TV, musicians. They talked about obscure films. Gilbert Gottfried's knowledge of film and TV and pop culture was borderline savant. It was amazing. He was a walking encyclopedia. Not only that, he was a collector and champion of classic horror. He owned Vincent Price memorabilia that was just amazing, and he was one of the main champions for the Universal Monster House. Of all the films that came out in the 30s and 40s of Dracula, Mummy, Frankenstein, Wolfman, he knew all about it, and he was just a huge, huge supporter of collectors and keeping these ideas and these movies alive. So, Gilbert, I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to listen to your podcast for the last 10 years. Thank you so much for everything, and rest in peace. So getting that out of the way, it's time to jump into my conversation with my childhood friend, Jonathan Olszewski. Enjoy the show. And I am here with one of my oldest friends, nearly lifelong friend, Jonathan Olszewski. We grew up together, even though we had a lot of years in between. But I've brought him on today because we're going to talk about the G.I. Joe movie. And even more than that, we're going to talk about the culture of toys, especially for boys in the 80s, because there were so many that kind of were just out there for kids to pick up. And I feel 
that they kind of helped develop the personalities of these kids that played with them. So before we get into all that, John, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. We've been friends since we were like 10 years old, and we both were living in this small town. We came from very different backgrounds, but one of the things I think that we found in common with each other that helped us become better friends was G.I. Joe. Uh, definitely. We we love to go play outside, and we would always do that. Like We would make believe that we were those characters or go out and have fun because it was it was definitely a, a part of being a kid, being a boy, like was going out, running around the dirt, um, shooting at fake things and stuff. And it definitely brought us uh, quickly close together once we did become friends. And it, it perpetuated, I mean, for years and years, that was one of the initial sole things that we did together. I mean, we had our little video game thing on the side too, but G.I. Joe was definitely the staple probably for a majority of those years. And I think it also applies to you in a very special way because you've spent much of your life in the U.S. Armed Forces. you want to dip into that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I actually I served for 11 years in the U.S. Army uh, working on Apache attack helicopters. I served in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom 5. Uh, I have also served in Afghanistan as a contractor even after I left the service. I'm also a fourth-generation combat veteran. My father was in Vietnam. My grandfather was in the Philippine Scouts in World War II and during Korea. And uh, my uh, great-grandfather, uh, he served in the Prussian artillery, so kind of for the other side during World War I, but still uh, a, a piece of my family history for sure. Now, do you think that your love for G.I. Joe, do you think that had any application to your time in the armed forces? Like, did you take any of that with you? I, I don't know, because what happens is they kind of they kind of clean clean slate when you get in there and they teach you the right way to do things. Like most people who shoot well in the military actually never shot before. Mm. And uh, so um, they really try to just teach you their way because a lot of people I, and that's kind of one thing we're going to talk about a little bit later where G.I. Joe does not yeah. <laughs> reflect these things. And so um, I, I don't think I was actually permitted to bring anything. <laughs> they were just like, no. You're done, kind of thing. So, like, you brought your snake eyes gear, and they're like, "Sorry, you got to keep that in your footlocker." Like, what this? Where does my katana go? There's nowhere my katana, my footlocker. <laughs> this is what well, this is bullcrap. <laughs> We're children of the '80s. I I feel that kids born after 1990 didn't have the the marketing towards them for toys like this as we did, especially in the 80s. There was some in the 70s, but like if you start listing off the toys that were popular when we were kids, you had Masters of the Universe, Transformers, Thundercats, G.I. Joe. Voltron. Voltron. You had Silverhawks. You had Cops. You had Street Sharks. You had all of these kind of macho and violence-based action figures that were marketed towards boys. I feel the generation after that was... Pokemon and Digimon and you saw a lot of these like Asian influences into the cartoons like the cartoons even changed like we didn't see cartoons like we were raised with and the way they were marketed to boys I'd say after 1995 I think it was a huge shift in that what, what, what do you think about that like oh I just well when when you first brought up to, we were going to talk about toys one of the first things that popped in I remember being in second grade and one of my friends David he brought a Rambo chain gun to school, like this plastic M60 chain gun. It had the bullets and everything. And we were out on the par the, the playground during recess. And we set up a little pillbox, right? A little fortified area where we were fake shooting at all of the children on the playground. And I'm like, where did this go? Because that would never... There's a kid who got expelled for chewing a, a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun, got expelled from school in grade school here. And we brought... Guns we to brought toy guns to school. Plastic guns to school all day long. I mean, I'm old enough to remember in kindergarten and first grade, we would literally play army and there were fake guns in the toy box at school. And I went to a private school. Like, it was just a thing. Like, and, and, and I know a lot of people say, oh, the generations of the 90s and the 2000s all were soft. And yes, in some ways they were. But I, I, I really think that we did have an advantage of being able to have a little bit of being able to have that suspension of disbelief. We were, we knew that these were toys. We knew that these were intellectual properties that weren't real. We could go to a Rambo movie or we could go to an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and we could leave knowing that we had just seen a movie. Very rarely did you hear about kids shooting up schools in the 80s 
or bringing that kind of violence to school. And if you did, it was usually dealt with with violence. I got the paddle when I was a kid. You know, it's so weird the kind of shifts that we've seen in that. And they're cultural shifts, and there's nothing we can do about them, and people have political debates. I just say, I'm happy that I grew up in the 80s where I did have surrounding cultural, pop culture references and pop culture importance of, of these toys and these intellectual properties. Yeah, I think every, almost every single, as a young child, almost every single cartoon or anything that we were involved with, they all came with weaponry. I remember when we started getting into being like uh, teenagers a little bit more like where I, I really like the, the cartoon Doug. Mm -hmm. And that's not a violent cartoon by any means. But I look back when I was younger, everything had weapons and everything, you know, like as a child. And and I don't think that's a bad thing, per se. Like I was we had fun. We went and uh, had enjoyable times. We didn't hurt people. We actually learned to more advocate for people. I remember you and I used to get in a lot of fights over recess no weapons involved we were just yeah. we were just kids who were bullying other kids we would go and try to stand up for them and stuff and and so I, I sat there i'm like i don't think they would any of this led towards negative behavior per se but the cartoons that were out and available just were not didn't have weapons and stuff and so there was that shift like you're talking about getting yeah. into that 90s that things were different so let's talk about like our progression through the eyes of these toys so my first toys that I played with were Masters of the Universe. That was like age four or five. And then I got into Transformers. So that was like 1986 to 1987, 88. I didn't get into G.I. Joe's until I actually, right before I moved to Utah and we became friends. And the reason why is because they stopped making the Transformers cartoons. But the G.I. Joe cartoon was still on. And it was really interesting because they used to do like these mini series. Like you'd have to watch four or five episodes to understand the story. And that's kind of what eventually led to the G.I. Joe movie in 1987. Now, to give a little history on that, Transformers movie and G.I. Joe movie were actually being made at the same time. And Transformers movie came out first. It was meant to kick off a new set of series with a new set of characters. Hence, spoiler alert, Optimus Prime dies in like the first 10 minutes of the movie and you're introduced to a whole new slew of characters. It backfired because children and parents were so upset about Optimus Prime, the baddest Transformer of them all, dying in the first 10 minutes. And then people just kind of checked out. And it kind of destroyed the toy line and it kind of destroyed the, the cartoon. So G.I. Joe movie actually went direct to video because they postponed its release because it had a very similar plot point, which we'll get to in a little while when we talk about the movie itself. And I think because they made that change and didn't make that hard shift like Transformers the movie did, it allowed it to have like a whole second generation and a continued toy line. So that was kind of my progression. It was Masters of the Universe to Transformers to G.I. Joe, then to um, Victoria's Secret catalogs. What about you? Um, well, I'm the youngest of four, so I come from a different spot where I had the older kids in the house. So I had Star Wars toys in the house when I was little. And we actually lost them all because my mom stepped on a on a pistol, you know, and that hurts because those are little thing, little things. But so I we had a whole house of, of figures and a lot of different toys from Star Wars. And then I do remember having Masters of the Universe gear. It's a very common one because they're very good bulky toys. Kids can't they don't break. Yeah, very kids can't easily. swallow and stuff like that. Very simple, large body toys. And I did not really get into Transformers that much. Uh, I don't know if it was a cost issue or something like that. Because you could get Masters of the Universe hand-me-downs. Yeah. Uh, that was a common thing. And then G.I. Joe, I remember only having a here or there kind of thing. And then once you came into my life, we got ramped up more. But it was just one of those, I thought it was cool at the store. I remember getting like the Tiger Shark series boat one time. And that was a pretty cool one. But I also remember putting it in a creek and one of my friends almost drowning. <laughs> you know, that was, oh, poor Adam. That was a bad day. I also remember at one point your mom came across like a bag or a box full at a yard sale or at a thrift store or something and all of a sudden you had a lot more than me and that's when like our battles really took off yeah like she my mom's a big time uh kind of yard seller ads and things like that and somebody was just selling like everything and i basically got a whole slew but that was after after i had moved away but yeah. we still would meet up on weekends and stuff and so i suddenly went from having just the small collection to being the the ultimate collection basically by inheritance from that guy. And let me touch on like how into this we really were. So 
like age 11, 12, and kind of phasing out at age 13, before you had like social media and camera phones and stuff like that, if we got an action figure that we thought was really cool, we would legitimately box it up and mail it to each other just so we could check it out and play with it. Like we did that several times. We were literally mailing our action figures back and forth to each other. Things were a lot cheaper back then too, so. Yeah, and not only that, we would come up with these designs for G.I. Joes and we would mail them to Hasbro to say, hey, I've got an idea for a G.I. Joe that like has wings and it's the paragliding force or something like that. And I actually got a letter back one time from Hasbro saying, hey, that's a great idea, but we don't take unsolicited ideas from 11-year-olds. But thank you. Keep it up. Like, it was kind of cool. I'm like, at least I got a letter. Someone read it. There was just so much uh, so much stuff that we would do with it. Even with my siblings, you got to understand, I'm the youngest of four, got twin older sisters and older brother. And we used to go out after dark and we would play in our yard and play G.I. Joe. We'd each pick our character. I know my sister loves snake eyes and... Erica liked Crazy Legs, who was a parachute guy. I forget who Jared was. Um, they all had these characters. And these are my siblings who were into other things, but we'd all go and play G.I. Joe together. And when a car would come by, we'd have to dive into the grass. And <laughs> and so it was one of those things that even my siblings, not even just kids my age, would participate in playing G.I. Joe on some level and making that an everyday kind of fun experience. Yeah, simpler times. So we're talking about G.I. Joe the movie today and its cult worthiness because there are a lot of, I'm going to say just people, men and women of our age that still watch this movie on a regular basis. It has gotten several impressive physical media re-releases since its first release on home video, which I still have. That's what I watched it on a couple of years ago. And then I watched the nice 4K Blu-ray version on YouTube. People talk about this movie because it's a real movie. Like you used to be able to watch these animated films and they just looked like an extended version of whatever Saturday morning cartoon it was based on. Like um, Care Bears movies and Care Bears 2, they have cult followings as well because they have some pretty interesting stories. But most of these other properties were pretty much just kind of like thrown together, thrown in a theater, or thrown on video without really a whole lot of love or attention to detail or respect for the property. America's number one superhero team explodes in the home video screen in their very first major motion picture blockbuster, G.I. Joe the Movie. Premiering exclusively on home video, this brand new multi-million dollar film extravaganza is a masterpiece in mind-blowing animation techniques that make this feature unlike any G.I. Joe you've ever seen. Galobolus, brilliantly voiced by Burgess Meredith, reveals his plan to destroy the minds of every human on Earth. This visible planet will be ours. <laughs> and this is for the U.S. Army! So this is at the tail end of the Marvel Productions and Sunbow Productions reign of the G.I. Joe Real American Hero cartoon, which ran from like 1982 to 1985. This was supposed to close off that story and they were going to like move forward with it. So before this movie came out, there was a miniseries called Rise of Sorpentor, which was like a five or six part miniseries that introduced Sergeant Slaughter and the creation of Serpentor, who was like the new villain that was to replace Cobra Commander. The story of that was they go out and they collect DNA from all the great conquerors of Earth's history. They get Vlad the Impaler, they get Alexander the Great, they get Montezuma for some reason. So each of these episodes was like in a different global locale where Cobra is trying to steal the DNA of these leaders. So that was kind of the setup for where this movie is. Do you remember watching any of those on TV? No. See, I I, I was much more into the cartoon than you were. I think you were more into the, the toys and the aspect of it. I had a fight with other people for TV times. So. That's right. I see the, the benefits of being an only child. I had all the TV time I wanted, really. So do you remember the first time you saw this film? Uh, no, I can't recall the first time, just... Um, I know that I've watched it and I watched it a number of times when we were, we were young. Um, I think I first saw it at a sleepover when I was like seven or eight and I had the VHS. And then when we became friends and we started having like birthday parties or sleepovers at your house, it was a ritual for you. Like if friends were coming over, we were watching G.I. Joe movie and a lot of us knew the dialogue. We had our own little cult of G.I. Joe way back then. So to start the movie off, it's got one of the best opening scenes of any movie, animated or 
or live action, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it has a an intro to what's happening, and it goes to full closure in the credits and introduces majority of all the characters, the main characters of GI Joe. But I mean, and you just it's right, it's it's kind of like man, it's like it's like modern movies. It's it's kind of like even Star Wars, where suddenly like there's no credits, suddenly boom, action, something's happening. You're like woo, and it's straight up fight, straight up fighting, and I like it how it introduces uh, Cobra first. So yeah, the the song plays and it's a kick-ass song. Cobra has their airships and their air troopers, and they are going to plant a bomb on the Statue of Liberty, which was during its 100-year anniversary. That's why there's fireworks and balloons and all this celebration for it. But G.I. Joe is there to save the day. Like you said, in this five-minute opening segment that's just a song, we get like a beginning, middle, and an end, and our blood is up. It is just a fantastic opening scene, and I would love to see like a live-action movie do something about that. I remember when we saw... G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra in the theater in 2009 together, we were like, I wonder if they're going to do some cool G.I. Joe movie stuff, which they didn't, but yeah. <laughs> they hardly did any real G.I. Joe stuff. <laughs> it's true. It was it was great to go see. Yeah, for, for nostalgia's sake. Yeah, and we even went and saw the second one. Didn't we see? We saw the yeah, we saw the second one together, too, yeah. The part about this film that I find great is that all the years of watching Cobra Commander being like the main villain, the main bad guy, he is immediately like emasculated by his crew. So Serpentor is now in charge and he's like, Cobra Commander, you are a failure. And he's like, my crew will back me up. And they're like, no, you suck. <laughs> you're a coward and you're a failure. And essentially they're ready to like, I don't know, like do a court martial on the guy and execute him. We don't know. Most Imperial Serpentor lies not within us, but within you! Your leadership has been pompous, pusillanimous, and pathetic! What did he say? He's gone betting! That's treason! I don't believe it. Yes, leadership is at the very heart of this matter, but it is not mine that is inadequate, Cobra Commander. It is yours. Your eagle-driven stupidity has converted victory to catastrophe for the last time! Go ahead! Make me the scapegoat. My loyal subordinates could testify to my superb stewardship of Cobra, but you don't have the courage to let them speak! Wrong again! Defend him if you can! Indeed they shall! You first, noble Destro! Militarily speaking, it's only fair to say that Cobra Commander is a world-class buffoon. But right when that happens, we are introduced to a new, the original chapter of Cobra, which we'll get to in a little bit. So we have this really kind of like athletic, well-built Viper woman appear out of this like biological creature submarine from a swamp. Yeah, she even like whipped out these weird snakes to get through an electric fence that didn't even phase her. She like touched it and she's like, oh, this is fine. I got my eels or whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, she threw those little snakey. Things. And then she's got like these uh, face huggers from Alien yeah. that have got like some kind of knockout gas in them and she throws them and they get on the Cobra guard's face and knocks them out. I mean, this was really cool shit from when we were kids because we were so used to like this technological universe that we were used to in G.I. Joe. Now we've got like this weird kind of bioweaponry that they're showing us. Like, what is this? And it was defeating them quickly. Like these battles that used to happen, million lasers going by and they throw a physical object bigger than a football, and boom, they're down. Well, I mean, it's also because, like, no one ever gets shot in G.I. Joe. If you've never watched it, 
no one ever gets shot. They'll blow up the jet, and then the guy will fly out with a parachute and land safely. Like, no one ever dies. One of the twins guys got grazed. I saw him get grazed in the movie when I watched it the other day. I was like, oh. That's why it's PG. He got hit. <laughs> Someone hit him. I never knew they got hit. I always used to make a joke that the uh, the Cobra and G.I. Joes were worse shots than Stormtroopers, but... <laughs> it's true. Well, actually, there's a... Oh, and we'll get to it. We'll probably get to it later. I'll have to bring it up. Remind me about Falcon and his accuracy. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So she breaks in, and she gets into Serpentor's main chamber, and he finds out that she has a connection to him. So if you had seen that original miniseries the rise of Serpentor, it turns out that these biological cobras, and they're called Cobra La, that they actually gave Dr. Mindbender the idea to create Serpentor based off all the DNA of these great leaders. And it kind of leads to another location later on in the film. It was just, uh, it was, uh, they did a really good job of, uh, of introducing that because when she said that, like, he's like, I know you. And I've like seen you in a dream, I've seen you in a dream, or something. And it was really cool because suddenly it just changed the pace where you're kind of like oh, this big assassin, this new. And and for me, you know, like uh, like seeing Serpentor, I didn't have a lot of that background on him since I wasn't always. And so it was just like you're thinking, oh, this guy's about to die. Yeah, this this, this woman just jacked everybody along the way, and then suddenly something breaks, plot shift, and you're just on the edge of your seat, and it's not action. And I'm like, that's a higher level than like a normal cartoon cartoons just bang, 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 boom, boom, boom. Ha ha. And suddenly, Oh, we're getting drama and storytelling. What? We're getting structure. What? <laughs> and like I said, it's a real movie. Yeah. And it was just like, so, so the MacGuffin, the plot driver device is something called the broadcast energy transmitter. I guess the whole point of it is, is that it can broadcast free energy to countries that don't have resources. It's kind of like the spiel they're giving. You know, it can like, oh, we can broadcast free energy to people who need it across the world. Of course, Cobra wants it because they were told to get it for Cobra Law. We don't know why yet, but we find out very soon. Now, before we get into what happens there, like Transformers the movie, this takes an opportunity to introduce us to a slew of new characters, obviously for marketing purposes. Because at this point, if you were fans of the toys and if you were fans of the cartoons, you had Roadblock, Shipwreck, Snake Eyes, Duke, Lady J, Scarlet, they're very, very sparsely used in this film. Well, once once we get to 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 that part, I got some pet peeves to bring up about what happened with them. But yeah, it was one of those things where you, you do see them in the show. Yeah. And then majority of the major characters are, are suddenly swept away. And uh, I knew you would know more about that. And I was like, I swear they probably brought out a whole ton of new new toys right after this because there is um I I even think there's new vehicles even inside. Yeah, there's new vehicles. Again, like you can't make a movie like this and not have it be somewhat of a commercial, right? For sure. Like you got to get the kids excited like me, like oh, I want that toy and I want that character. So we're kind of taken to like the training grounds for new Joe recruits. So Beachhead is like this drill sergeant and we got a list of new characters who are going to be like the new Joes in training. We've got Big Lob, who's like a basketball player. We got Tunnel Rat, who's a little guy who can fit in tunnels, apparently, with a New York accent. We've got Law and Order, which is a military policeman and his dog. We've got uh, Jinx, who is a lady ninja who was trained by a blind master, so she works best blindfolded. And then we've got the Misfit. We've got Lieutenant Falcon, played by Don Johnson of Miami Vice fame. And I'm going to tell you right now, Lieutenant Falcon was always my favorite G.I. Joe character, even before, before I saw the movie. And then once I saw the movie, I was like, oh, this guy kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He he actually sucks on so many levels, especially looking at it as an adult now. It's even worse. <laughs> he is a horrible person. He's a horrible person. He's a horrible soldier. He's a horrible everything. And of course, we'll, we'll get into it at the end, but... Typical movies like this, there's that like redemption part where like now he's the hero, but not really. We'll get into that at the end. Like he could not have done it by himself. So while these guys are training to be the new Joes and they're doing it like by using their wits, by using their strength and using gadgetry, of course, because they're toys during this siege in the Antarctic where Cobra attacks to get the broadcast energy transmitter, they fail. And Cobra Commander takes all of the surviving Cobra people into this forest of 
these large kind of trees and pods and spires, but Sorpentor has been captured and taken to this facility. But what's really hilarious to me is how many times Cobra Commander has been like, retreat, retreat, right? Screams that so many times. This time he's like, retreat, I'll take you to the super secret place I've known about and have never told anybody. It's just close by, let's go. Like all the different times they've run away and you're like, why now? Right. <laughs> like, what's, oh, we're in a movie. Yes, we need a plot driver. We need to get to that second act, John. Oh, oh, shoot. So this is where we were talking about being disappointed because all of like the standard G.I. Joe characters that we all know and love follow Cobra into this thicket of, of vines and spires only to be captured and cocooned by these plants not to be seen for another 45 minutes. It's actually even worse than Antonio's trying to illustrate. It is it is worse than that because there's these little like weird ant face dudes with these big ninja swords that jump up like scimitars. Like yes, it's just weird and they jump up and they're doing these little noises and stuff and they're fighting. This is where I got really upset uh, watching it uh, just recently. One of these guys jumps up and there's snake eyes. The snake eyes goes to hit them. The ant dude catches his hand, bitch slaps him down and he is captured and I'm like now, Snake Eyes is definitely one of the absolute most popular, timeless G.I. Joe characters ever. Like, yeah. everyone, no one doesn't like Snake Eyes. And definitely, especially from the classic group, you understand why they had to make it, like, not a big deal. People couldn't, they didn't want people raving about Snake Eyes. But uh, the fact that one punch, bitch slap. Cocoon. And he's done. And you're like, what? And that was it. That is, you never see him again in the show. No, just ever. Not even at the end. He they, probably blew up in Cobra Law at the end or something. Like, it's it's horrible. They did they did him so dirty. Yeah, but I was like, one little punch. If you go back and watch just that one scene, you'll be like, just, really? Yeah, just one hit. You're like, eh. you're like, I've seen Snake Eyes take out like an entire Cobra facility by himself. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then later in the show when they're fighting those same ant guys again, you're like, but. Snake Eyes could have done so much better. If these guys are doing this well, I mean, come on, Snake Eyes. But they did. All they did was just quickly remove every single character they needed to. And you're like, oh, but I when I sat there and watched Snake Eyes, a little part of my heart, like a little part chipped off. And I was like, <gasps> well, at least they didn't kill him. You know, oh, for sure. They just put him on. They put him on ice, so to speak. And a few of them get captured, like Roadblock and uh, uh, Quick Kick. They all get captured and they get put into like this jail with like these weird tentacle claws, like it's just really cool. <laughs> so taking us back to the Joe base, it turns out that Falcon, dude, the guy just can't, the guy can't keep it focused. He's already let a date into this facility. Right. So you've got the Dreadnoughts with Zartan, the master of disguise, which they actually use that character in the GI Joe movies later. Yep. And he's got a sister named Zorana. And that is who Falcon has brought in to the GI Joe top secrets prison here let me show you serpentor because any date's gonna get hot if you show her serpentor don't worry about it heather when you're lucky enough to have lieutenant falcon for a guide you have nothing to fear but falcon himself don't try spooking me falcon i'm scared enough as it is come on you can relax with me now you see those tech manuals over there i just suppose they were cobra creeps Look out! Ooh, do it again, Falcon, please! <laughs> Watch this. Over my shoulder. Duke! What are you doing here? My duty, which is more than you seem able to do. Didn't it occur to you that a military prison is no place for a date? So she turns out that she's taken pictures with her earrings. Now the Cobras have the blueprints to... The G.I. Joe base. Yeah, like all the security measures he took to get all the all the way in there. Yeah, they bust in and capture Serpentor. Why? Because Falcon's now in the garage hitting on Jinx and explaining, man, no one could ever break in here because we got all these security systems, which I've just apparently told this girl how to break through. Yeah, the, the unlikely circumstance. Like, he got in trouble for bringing her in, so they put him on guard duty, and his job was to monitor everything. And then what's hilarious is when he walks up to Jinx, she's like working on a on a on a Jeep or something like that. He walks up, first thing he does is he slaps her butt. Yeah, he slaps L her on the butt. Lieutenant Officer Falcon <laughs> hitting the butt of uh and she's not an officer, she's just a regular soldier. I'm like, Ooh. 
there's equal the eo sergeant would be getting a phone call <laughs> no matter what to be like oh what's going on and then he proceeds to hit on her and uh, in a professional sense it was a very uncomfortable conversation where you're like we see next the court martial of falcon because he's broken some rules by letting people in and letting like the most powerful terrorist in the world be released you know duke we find out is his half brother he says uh falcon's my half brother show him some mercy i'm like what, what's the worst they gonna do life in prison or do you think they'd kill him uh, you, you need to understand we we, we kind of stepped past one point with that three other gi joes were injured when Spentor was released true That's another way they got three other main characters to have a little bit of limelight but also get them out of the movie um so they they were able to get those those guys removed uh, so having other soldiers injured even ups the ante, not only feeling. And one thing you need to understand, even from a military aspect now, there's general orders of the military, general orders that soldiers have to follow. The first general order, like something to guard my post and everything within the limits of my post and not leave my post until properly relieved. And Falcon was not relieved, not at his post. Like the first general order of soldiers, he completely broke every single aspect of that rule. That's a really big deal. I w- that would immediately go to a court martial, and I don't even think someone throwing themselves down the mercy. I think you can be a good guy still. Like, <laughs> three people got messed up, and somebody got let out because you broke the first rule of being a soldier. Mm, probably not. Then again, lie. like GI Joe doesn't really follow the rules of the military. Like they what? they consider themselves military, but I don't know. Oh so, man! Yeah. So what they decide to do is they decide to send him to the slaughterhouse which is like this mercenary training camp run by Sergeant Slaughter. Like how how badass do you have to be that it is Sergeant Slaughter played as Sergeant Slaughter? That is the John Wayne level of GI Joes where you're like how cool are you that you have a GI Joe named after you exactly after you and you get to be your own GI Joe. And you get to be in the movie yeah. and have your own crew. That's a high level of awesomeness, right? Right? And he has his own island, his own island where he has his three marauders, and one of them is an ex-Cobra uh, Viper, then he's got an ex-Circus guy, and then he's got an ex-football uh, player who got thrown out for unnecessary roughness. Yeah. And they are kind of like the, I don't know, like the, the top secret, maybe CIA enforcers of G.I. Joe. They're like the G.I. Joe for G.I. Joe, essentially. Yeah, it's almost like they're just not classy enough to go hang with the others like uh they might hurt the others so we're gonna keep you guys over here but when we need you right or they're like the the mi6 they're like the disavowable gi joes you know yeah Yeah, you weren't really here (laughs) you weren't really here you never really existed they send falcon out there and like they make him run 30 miles to the barracks and it's got one of my favorite lines in the film where he says if you don't keep up, I'll send you home in a ditty bag. I've been expecting you. My name is Sergeant Slaughter, special drill instructor for G.I. Joe. That's terrific, Sarge, but uh, I'm trying to cut down on the chicken sweat just now, so if you'll excuse me. You're going nowhere, Space Case. You're here because you're an industrial straight follow-up. My job is to whip you into shape, and I'm talking whip. There's only two ways out of my command. On your feet like a man, or in a ditty bag. An itty bitty ditty bag. Got it? Yes, sir. I didn't know what a ditty bag was. I looked it up. It's a real term. What does it mean? It is an old army slang for the do-it-yourself bag. It's a D-I-T-Y. At least this is according to Wicca, so who knows how accurate that is. But this whole time, I just thought it was something kind of badass to say. I'm like, oh, it's actually a term. He's just telling him. He's gonna send him home in your in your ditty bag. Yeah. Um, there's some really great stuff when he when Falcon shows up. They make a reference to when he shows up. He's like, "Oh, you missed breakfast." There's a mountain of dishes. These huge guys are eating all this food, but it's and really bones cool. and bones and everything. They're eating ribs, and you're like, "Okay, it doesn't even look very cooked in the in the coloring <laughs> of the video." But um, they're sitting there eating it, and he's like, "Oh, well, you can uh, you can get yourself sorted out with uh, some KP P duty. KP is a kitchen patrol, so that's when you're doing kitchen duty." So. He runs in the, from running all that way. They make him clean up all the dishes and stuff, and which is very normal. New recruit, yeah. lowest guy, lowest guy in the group would definitely do that. But there's some beautiful stuff through the training where they actually show you where they're being really hard on Falcon. But even there's a point where they're doing like uh, some chin ups, and suddenly one of the other guys does single arm chin ups while holding Falcon, Falcon and pulling him up. 
And I thought that was really cool. Because they didn't have, a, they weren't going to spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. But I thought it was really cool how they actually showed them caring about him succeeding. Well, yeah. And again, it's kind of like, um, I know like with Hell Week and stuff like that, like the washouts and all that, they're not here to let Falcon fail. They are here to like get the best out of him. Because yeah, I guess at the end of the day, there is a good soldier in him, even though like his his baser instincts are are nonsense. They don't get to complete the training because they are given a mission to go infiltrate the Terror Dome. You know, casual. Hey, yeah, we sent you a piece of lard, but hey, why didn't you go do this super awesome, big, important, important mission? Just the four of you. Yeah, is that all? Like <laughs> all these other resources. And like Falcon hasn't even like earned his stripes or like respect yet, but once they get in there, yeah, he's kind of badass, and he you start seeing that character arc change because he's willing to do the self sacrifice. But yeah, they flip that switch really fast because he's in there while they've planted the bombs. Everyone's ready to go, and Sergeant's like, "We don't leave a man behind. Either we all go home or we don't go home." I, I took big issue that the first off Falcon just had screwed up with uh, the the guard duty. Yeah, with Serpentor and all that, and then they go in the Terror Dome and they're they set a um they set a bomb and get things taken care of and they're like they actually learn the secret the big secret plot point and they turn to Falcon and they're like, hey, we need to get this word out. You need to get that to the Joes. I'm like, why would you turn to the person who is now number one most unreliable Joe <laughs> on Earth and give him the most important job? And even though it's not exactly his fault, he still screws it up. Yeah. You're like, because eh, there was a part where with him, like, did you get the word out? No, I'd be like, oh, you suck. When really it wasn't his fault, but well, I just thought it was hilarious. The most unreliable Joe gets the most important job at the most important moment. It's because it's Don Johnson doing the voice. And that's, yeah, the celebrity voice has to survive. So let's take a break on the Joes because we haven't really touched on the awesomeness of Cobra Law. So you've got this whole secret civilization of ancient lizard people that were here before we were, before humans were. Before the Ice Age. Before the Ice Age. They were supposed to be probably the dominant species on this planet. The Ice Age screwed it up, allowing the humans to like invent fire and become more technically proficient and survive in this climate. Meanwhile, they're protected. The Cobra Law people are protected in like this encased dome in the Himalayas. 40,000 years ago, the glory of Cobra La dominated this planet, but an age of ice destroyed much of what we had built, and with it began the time of the barbarians. <laughs> Surprisingly, they evolved. If you ask me, some of them did not evolve. And gradually, they mastered a technology based on inorganic, lifeless substance. Now, in there, we have Nemesis Enforcer, who is like the main enforcer bad guy of Cobra Law, who is this behemoth of a guy with these awesome claws that come out of his wrists and massive wings, and he flies and he grunts and he just really just tears people up. Yeah, and his, his wings can, like, block laser blasts and deflect energy fields. He's, like, the perfect specimen. <laughs> and he's super strong and just uh, just is amazing in his strength and abilities, and he doesn't talk. No, nope, he just grunts. He makes grunting noises, but he was, we were all like, whoa, oh. badass, yeah! He is the badass of that movie, for sure. Then we have the leader of Cobra Law, who is one of my favorite villains of all time. His name is Galobulus. And he's voiced by Burgess Meredith, who most people would know as Mickey from Rocky, Rocky's trainer. Now, he is half man, half snake, but his snake tail is like arachnid shells. I can't really describe it. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you crack a crab apart and you actually glued all that crap on, that's kind of what it looks like. He even has part of that around one of his arms. On his arms. Arm and his shoulder and stuff. And then he's got like a reptilian scale around his head with like a golden eye badass character voiced by Burgess Meredith now he starts telling the Cobras the story of Cobra Commander and Cobra Law so apparently we're taking a break from canon of G.I. Joe because originally Cobra Commander was a used car salesman who eventually found his way into terrorism 
they throw all that aside. They pull a George Lucas expanded universe and throw all, all that aside, and they give Cobra Commander a new history that he was actually a scientist for Cobra Law who had had this crazy accident happen and is now disformed. But he was brilliant, so Galobulus made him his commander of Cobra's armies outside of this dome in the Himalayas to start taking out the world. But as we've learned in the movie, Cobra Commander is incompetent and fails pretty much at everything. His, his cowardice is the biggest, I think his biggest, his biggest flaw is that he doesn't want to die. Yeah, well, he says, like, the only thing worse than cowardice is failure. And his punishment is he is given, kind of like in the Super Mario Brothers movie, a de-evolution treatment. He is being de-evolved back into his primitive state, which is a snake. And it happens kind of slowly and kind of grotesquely. It was kind of cool for a kid's movie to have, like, this de-evolution of this character that we had known for so long as a kid. And as his body is becoming less and less evolved, can't speak as well, he's losing train of thought, he's becoming less of a man and more of a serpent. And he ends up in the jail cell with Roadblock and the other Joes, and they kind of form like this uneasy alliance to help them get out. Like Cobra Commander knows how to get out, he utilizes the Joes to get out. For a second there, you think that he's like kind of earned his his character redemption arc. Yeah, it it's, it's really cool. Well, kind of i don't know about redeem sometimes because you're like he just had everyone in under him you know basically turn turn on him he just got outcast has nowhere else to go yeah it's redemption out of necessity yeah he's it's it's basically back to his cowardice survival instinct and he uses what he's got so he is really smart he is really resourceful um but he's such a coward such a coward and uh so he just turns to the joes to kind of explain some stuff and uh at least kind of a character arc. And I guess in the very long run, he kind of ends up not being as a coward as he wants, but it's also his de-evolved state. So you're like, is that really, you know, he's not using higher thinking right in that situation. So, but it does definitely starts that where you, you, you feel bad for him. You kind of do for the first time. You kind of feel bad for the bad guy. Like, Again, I think that's good writing. That's a good plot structure yeah. for a, for a kid's movie. You're like, holy cow. Like, I mean, it's not only he's losing. He's not only just lost all of what, you know, quote unquote friends. He just lost his humanity. Yeah. Like, that's a crazy plot. Like, just in a, you could make a whole movie about that, you know, where you're just kind of like someone to lose. I mean, I'm sure. Well, losing that part of you and, and he's slipping and you can hear it. There's a conversation him and Roblox have that. You know, Don't let the serpent take over or whatever. Right. He's like, and. And they do a really good job of showing that scale, but and you just feel for the dude. Yeah, which takes us to like this battle scene that happens where the Cobra Law is using all of their biological like weaponry and and air force. Like they have like these bio jets and these bio tanks that are like essentially giant like mealworms that can just plow through stuff in order to get the broadcast energy transmitter back to the Himalayas. We haven't even talked about why they need it. They they reveal that plot point. They reveal that plot point during that conversation where they're de-evolving Cobra Commander. Yeah. So they have this system where they've got all these spore pods that launch into space, but they need a massive amount of energy to essentially incubate these spore pods in space. And when they burst, they're going to drop these spores all over the planet and anyone that's not protected by the dome in the Himalayas is going to be de-evolved into like their most primitive state. So essentially, they're going to turn them into Neanderthals, troglodytes. You know, who knows what they're going to turn into? They're just kind of reversing. They're probably it's almost like putting the world back where it was before the Ice Age, for so they can emerge again, being superior and basically being on. You know. Now here's the thing, man. Not not a bad idea. <laughs> like, if you look at it from an ecological standpoint, they're like, yeah, let's get rid of these crazy humans who are polluting the planet. That's their whole point. If anything, they're bioactivists more than terrorists. They're like, we need to fix this planet. Let's get these guys back to monkeys, and we're going to fix the planet. Yeah, we'll be like, eh, just just take over, and we're going to do it. And, and that's actually one thing when they're introducing their history. They actually talk how ne- they talk super negative on the humans because of their technology, because yeah. they they evolved in that. Because Cobra Law, if you look, everything they do, all their weapons are a biological, natural uh, kind of thing, which is funny. But here's the bad part. <laughs> their dependency on their big master plan is the most high-tech, up-to-date, $1 billion government investment 
Yeah, but they're only going to use it once. Oh, just once. (laughs) We need this one thing of technology, which we hate. You just made me think that, like, does Cobra Law shop at Whole Foods? They're like, oh, biologically organic and natural. (laughs) Oh, you're going to buy that poison? You're going to buy that? You're going to buy that soda? You know what's in there? Corn syrup. (laughs) They get the BET back, and during this crazy battle, Duke who we've known to this point as like the Optimus Prime of G.I. Joe. Like Duke has always been the main character. Serpentor is about to kill Falcon. He throws a snake spear at him. Duke jumps in the way and takes a spear to the heart. Now, in the original version of this movie, Duke dies. But because they realized how bad it was for marketing after the fiasco that was the Transformers movie, they changed the line to... Oh, he slipped into a coma so he can live. Which is hilarious because when you watch the scene, he's like doing the whole last words and go, Joe. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to throw up. Um, it's one of those, and he falls and he like leans back and they're like, he's gone into a coma. And you're just like, there's no machines. They're in the middle of a battlefield. There's nothing going on. Like, the dude took how do you a, know he's al- How do you know he's alive? He no took a snake spear to vitals. the heart. <laughs> no one's even checked his vitals. Like, he's just. Oh, coma. Like, you can definitely feel that it it feels very weird at that moment how that was slid in. Well, when I was seven years old, I bought it. Oh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. I mean, it flows generally well, but you're kind of like, like you would you would check his pulse. Oh, he's in a coma. coma. You know what I mean? They oh, didn't have that because that. he was dead. Um, but now he's now he's in a coma. Now, Ta-da. this is this is where like it kind of kicks off now. As we close to the end, we go to like this inglorious bastards. Dirty Dozen, like, last man standing kind of attack. The Sarge, the Recruits, Jinx, and Falcon take a helicopter to this dome in the Himalayas to destroy the BET before it can get these spores matured so they can blow up. The Joes sent an initial crew in, Cobra Commander and Roadblock. Roadblock's blind. He got blinded in his escape. And they're trying to warn them about that plant, that crazy plant. Yeah, Flint is in charge of that crew, I think. Yeah, and they, like, run right in. Flint and his crew just get immediately messed up and cocooned yep and so it was one of those like hey you need to oh no they're screwed so um and that's where kind of roadblock and and cover commander kind of come back into the story just basically just late enough (laughs) to not warn them and that's what basically gateways for all the misfits yeah to have their moment They're, they're the only ones left which is a very you know that's a very common plot style and a lot of things were like oh guess it's on us Guess it's on us we gotta save the world now but uh, and they were ready for it, you know, and it was kind of cool because now you're like really jazzed. Where you're like, everyone's gone, everyone's offline, all the classics, even some of the news and everything. Just so now, all those new characters, they're the, they're it. They're it. They have their moment in the sun, and it's Earth on the line. That's the whole thing. This is a right. The whole Earth. The spores are actually shot into space now, so the spores are in space, and of course they've got the BET. Yeah. They're energizing them, so they're starting to ripen and get ready to to burst and everything. And they actually do burst, so time is counting. Falcon, Jinx, Sergeant Slaughter, they go in. They each have their equal in villains to fight. So Pythona, the girl from the beginning with the laser talons and the, the bio face huggers, she's fighting Jinx, and Jinx is blindfolding herself so she can like use her ninja mastery. Sergeant Slaughter is a badass, obviously. He's like, I'll take Nemesis Enforcer. He takes the biggest guy on the block. And, of course, Falcon goes after Galobulus, which is not a very even match, but they all have their own victories, so to speak. Nemesis Enforcer gets thrown down the pit. Pythona gets thrown down the pit. Serpentor, Falcon takes on Serpentor first. Basically, it's really hilarious because the fan is right below his cape the whole time, but Falcon pulls his cape into the fan. But the good part is, like, that gets Falcon to be the only one over on the other side to fight. But at the same time, Serpentor suddenly just shoots out a window. He doesn't go down the tube. He pops out some window somewhere. It's kind of like when Vader's uh, TIE fighter gets nicked and just flies off into space at the end of the first Star Wars. like, wait a second. Like, hey, it worked for Star Wars. It'll work for us. (laughs) Absolutely. Actually, I felt a lot of Star Wars vibes through this whole show. Yeah, I mean, you can feel Star Wars vibes in pretty much anything these days. Yeah. So Galobulus is now, like, laughing. He's like, ha you failed. The spores have ripened and matured, and now you're all doomed. And he gets his little pod, and he flies away, too. So now you've got two villains who've gotten away. Sequel setup, we never got it. Well, we kind of got a little miniseries after it, but they didn't touch on Galobulus. So the only thing they can do now is turn the BET all the way up so they can fry the spores in space which they do, 
and then they get away just in time before it blows up, and then everyone is happy, and Duke, we find out, survived, and he was coming out of his coma right at the end before the credits. <laughs> that's what they cheered for. They all cheer, and that's when they're like, Duke woke up from like, his coma. It's going to be fine. Hey, guys, Duke woke up from his coma. And He's okay. Go, and they're like, yay! <laughs> but it, what's funny about when uh, Falcon cranks that thing up to full power, I'm just like, okay, so it's like going to be like a super microwave. First off, Falcon is definitely not one of the smart guys of the crew. Right. They like So it's one of those like, uh, what's going on here? And then he's like, here's my idea. And he just does it. Like, it's on his own. He just, yeah. that's all they've got. And it's funny because everybody else is like supporting him from a distance. Yeah, that's a good idea. Like, they know none of the smart guys on the crew are, are in this group. Are, are in this group. He just cranks it up. And I'm like, could that like flash boil the whole atmosphere? Could that like, they basically went to a nuclear global warming scenario, but it's all they got before they all get mutated anyway. It was like the only option, I guess. But it was just funny. I was like, huh. It's like you saved the world, but now we all have cancer. Yeah. Like, there we go. That's that's for sure. For sure. Um, We got to, we skipped my accuracy thing. When Falcon is fighting Serpentor, he's got this laser shotgun. Serpentor's flying at him. And in the cartoon, they show him shooting. And then he like recocks and shoots again. And each shot, it goes from left to right to left to right on the, on the video of the shotgun. And you look up at Serpentor flying, the shots go left and right, clear missing him, like completely right. missing him. And I was like, Falcon, who's shooting lasers over his shoulder off magnetic walls. And he can't shoot. And he can't even shoot a person flying straight at him. Straight at him. Straight at him. <laughs> and he's like, left, right, left, right. And they really overemphasize it in the cartoon. I was like, and so, I mean, that was like hardcore stormtrooper shooting right there. It was like so bad. So, yeah, man, this this movie, like we kind of just sped right through it. And it's like a 90 minute movie, which for a kid's movie, that's fine. Maybe even a little bit long for a kid's movie. But here's the thing is like, I still get excited when I watch this movie. Now, I haven't really gone back and watched any G.I. Joe episodes. You know, I still have some G.I. Joe toys that I let my kid play with. Like he's got a Snake Eyes. So my old Snake Eyes, he loves it. And he fights Boba Fett with it because I still have my Boba Fett. It it lives on in certain ways. And they've tried to reboot G.I. Joe cartoons and toys and I have no idea how culturally relevant they were when they were releasing them or re-releasing them. It was enough to make two movies, you know, one with uh, Channing Tatum and one with The Rock. Can't go wrong with that. And they were entertaining enough. Us as diehard G.I. Joe fans, we were kind of let down by the story and, and the respect for the intellectual property. It was kind of like a money grab on nostalgia. But we still had fun with, you know, some of the elements to it because we knew the characters' names and and whatever. But there's something to be said, and I, I've, I've seen this debate go on. You know, there's there's a lot of talk about cultural appropriation, which I agree in a lot of aspects is wrong in, in a lot of aspects. Like, I think Halloween costumes, probably not the best thing for cultural appropriation. I think it's subjective, and I know that there are some cultures that are kind of mixed on that. Some think it's absolutely offensive, and some say, well, at least people are recognizing our culture. It's always a hot topic. It's always a hot debate. I've always been really kind of cool with all the different ethnicities represented in the G.I. Joes. You had Latin Americans, you had African Americans, you had Australians, you had the Native American with the hawk. But here's the thing, is like, I've seen a lot of articles come out and say, it's so shameful how they culturally appropriated these characters in the 80s. How dare they shame on them? I'm a mixed race person. I was always excited to see any kind of ethnicity similar to mine in a toy line because we were so used to only seeing white people in toys. All of the He-Man guys were white. You know, all of the uh, Silverhawks were white. I thought it was great to see other cultures. I was too young to understand what might be culturally offensive. You know, like I guess some characters that have like a Native American headdress, and if it was done without respect, I get that. As a kid, I thought it was really cool to see these ethnicities in a toy that I played with. I mean, where, where do you stand on that, do you think? Uh, well, it, it's one of those things where, um, like you said, when we were kids, we didn't think much about that stuff at all. But looking back, you're like, I own toys. Uh, like, I, we had, like, the the fridge. It was a G.I. Joe yeah. character, a football player, African, African or a black football player. We had that toy. We had that toy. Like, we both had it. Yeah, we had a toy, of, and and it, was, it wasn't like a thing. Like, as in, it wasn't weird. It was just, that was just... A, a character it was a hero to us yeah. it was one of our little animated heroes and i'm like i get that there's all we have to be sensitive and understanding on things but i i'm a, I'm a little white kid up in a small town in heber city and one of my heroes is this little six inch tall black dude yeah you know like that's that should be freaking cool in the 80s that's what i thought too and i this is my point it was cool in the 80s 
I think that people who are talking about it now, they didn't grow up in that time. They didn't grow up when it was like, you know, not every family on TV matched them. Because when I was growing up, you had the Cosbys or you had Full House. Where were the Latin American sitcoms? Where are the Latin American characters? I didn't get any of that growing up. Like you would always have like the one maybe like wisecracking Latin American guy or he was often portrayed as like a sexual predator or the real kind of like flirty, overtly sexually, you know, creepy guy. That's what I grew up with in the 80s and 90s, having Latin Americans playing those kind of roles. So I I take pride in anytime I saw my ethnicity at least represented. And I was too young to know if it was good or bad. I was just happy to see that there was someone that was my shade of color with an accent similar to my dad's in a toy line that I played with, you know? So I think that's thing without getting too deep into it. But like, I've heard a lot of talk about that. G.I. Joe was super inappropriate for being culturally appropriated. I, I was fine with it as a kid. I've looked back and I can see where it's problematic in today's lens, but that's today's lens, you know? Don't take it away from my childhood is, is I guess, my point. Yeah, I mean, the, that's the beauty as we're, as you're kind of starting into the section. I was just, I kept just sitting there thinking, I was like, G.I. Joe, even though I've got my issues coming from the military, right? It just completely does not reflect really leaving a lot of the military-esque side of it. But that's so important for it because they had to make each character have their own personality, their own highlights, pros and cons and, and things. And then I was like, if they didn't do that, we would just have the little green army men. Exactly. And that you're like, that's we needed the diverseness of all their skills, all their all their abilities, ethnicities, everything. That was the package. The package deal was they're all different. Yeah. Because the army's not about being different. And G.I. Joe brought a military-esque side of things to our, you know, 80s. This is yeah. the Cold War, pro-America. We were still afraid Russia was going to bomb us. Oh, every day. Every day. I look at all those movies, Ruskies and Red, Red Dawn, Dawn and all that stuff. That was a that was a real that was our real life. I try to explain it. I'm a teacher right now, and my students look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, no, man, the, the Green Army men. That's the military. That's the real military is the no individuals. Yeah. And the G.I. Joe is all about individuals and celebrating your differences. Everyone has a different weapon. Everyone has a different outfit. Everyone has a different skill set. Everyone has a different thing they bring to the table. And isn't that isn't that what we are supposed to be celebrating now and today? Like we're supposed to celebrate our differences and how that makes us better by working with them. And G.I. Joe is just 30, 40 years ahead. I mean, the real American hero. It doesn't get any deeper than that. Like, these were American heroes. Exactly. It is a diverse group of people, each with their own skills and psych psychology. I mean, the toys had dossiers on the back of the packaging that had, like, their date of birth and their sign and all the different, like, things that they were into. You could get a psychological profile of the toy you were playing they, with. They were real people, basically. It's not just, here's their name. Yeah. Like it was a whole thing laid out there because one of this could be some kid's favorite. Yeah. It wasn't just another. Yeah. It could be their favorite. We all had different ones that we, we liked and loved. And it wasn't just not everyone. Like, even though we all like snake eyes, he wasn't always our top favorite. We yeah. all had our little special one and yeah. stuff. And I just sit there and I, I, it makes me sad that you're talking like that. You had these conversations that people are, or seeing that people are kind of ragging down on, on GI Joe. And I'm like, I think it, it really did bring up things that, we have been having to challenge other programs and other shows and other stuff to to do is to bring in other characters from other backgrounds. And you're like, they were doing it and now they're bad. I know. And as we close this out, I just have to say like G.I. Joe's episodes ended with a PSA of like how to keep yourself safe, stranger danger, don't drink the poison under the sink, don't play with matches. And there were also some that were kind of like, don't bully people for being a different class than you. Don't bully people for being a different race than you. Like, this was stuff that was way ahead of its time, I think, in the zeitgeist of how toys were marketed. These were like lesson-giving PSAs. Now, we all make fun of them these days because they were kind of corny and heavy-handed. Hey, man, they were trying. I am who I am today because of things like that. Not necessarily just G.I. Joe, but things that left some kind of mark in the pulp culture of the day and the way that my young brain was developing psychologically. And and those PSAs were there was other ones I when I, I always still remember one from Mask and stuff, but but G.I. Joe, I mean, that's one of our heroes, these people who save the day, save the world, and they're here to advise and help us. But I look back and I, I think that those videos did help us be 
more courageous and more willing to stand up for people. Johnny, catch! Oh no! Let's tell mom it was Billy's mistake. You're making the mistake. Flint! Anyone can have an accident, but lying makes it worse. But mom will be upset. She'll be even more upset if you lie. And how would you feel if Billy got punished? Face up to what you've done. Don't take the easy way out. We'll tell her we did it. Remember, it's better to tell the truth. And that's no lie. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. And, and have probably guided some deep values that we have. I mean, I ended up going and being a soldier. And I'm just not because of just G.I. Joe. I mean, I like I said, a multi-generation thing. But it wasn't a surprise to anybody when I decided to join. And and I do feel that there, there were elements of that that were ingrained ingrained in me there that were taught to me like this this is how you be a good person this is these are values that we should have in our society and sometimes i don't think we have values to uh stand up for people we'll work on that we'll we'll get better or we'll we won't you know but i think we can get better individually if we try it's the it's the herd mentality sometimes that brings things down sometimes all you can do is just worry about yourself and your family and your inner circle you know whatever you can do to change and make yourself better and your inner circle better and more positive, you know, maybe that's the first step instead of trying to change the world through a TikTok video. And with that, it was fun talking to you, man, to have a conversation like this, because usually we have conversations like this, but like in the car on our way to like a movie or a restaurant or or over lunch. So to have this and, and let people kind of like share into our insights and our childhood, it's always a it's always a fun time talking to you. Yeah, it's definitely been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me in. Absolutely. And we were going to have John back eventually because what we didn't mention is that he is a automobile and mechanic expert and historian, the most knowledgeable guy I know about that field. And we're going to talk about car movies eventually on the Cult Worthy podcast. So uh, I can't wait to have you back for that. Yeah, I'm extremely excited about that because that is my everyday passion for sure. So once again, my name is Antonio. I was your host, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and on Letterboxd, or you can check my website out, thecultworthy.com, where I have all my blogs, reviews, and news updates of all things cult-worthy. And John, I will see you later. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange it has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Gondar, the group of my colleagues. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Eric Benford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills Wooden too. Warriors! Come out to play! And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. <laughs>